Hi, and welcome back to the Evolving Media Podcast, a podcast where we talk to some brilliant people about the changes in the media industry from the point of view of the storytellers, creators, and producers in the industry. You can help this podcast immensely by subscribing to it, rating it on whatever platform you're listening to it on, and sharing it on your favorite social media platforms. It'll help us make more of these episodes, so if you have the time, please consider helping out. Today's podcast is the second part of my talk with Caitlin Burns, producer and strategist with decades of experience from all forms of transmedia and immersive media projects. I talk about actually getting down and developing and producing products in media today. In the first part we talked a lot about the whys and the hows of starting up a project. Today we'll dive a bit deeper into what we need to know and think about when actually producing stuff. Pesky little things like the audience and such like, for instance. Part one of this talk is naturally in the episode before this and I highly encourage you to listen to that one as well. Okay, it's time to talk serious stuff. Welcome. So, Caitlin, welcome back to the second episode of this podcast where we talk about the practicalities behind, you know, creating stuff for media in the year 2019 and beyond. <laughs> yes. And, and of course, for those of you just turning, tuning in, uh, you should listen to part one again, because at the end of part one, in the classic tradition of early serials, I tied Simon to a train track and the train is barreling down. Uh, I tied the microphone uh, precariously over a ledge, a la Flash Gordon. Um, so now we get to see whether or not any of that actually happened. Simone, did any of it actually happen? All of it happened. Yes. But did it just happen in my mind? We don't know. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, have you ever spent any time watching those those early movie theater serials? Of course. They are wild. Um, they, yeah. You know, I, I, only, uh, I only ended up watching them because my, my father forced me to. He was old enough to have gone to the movie theaters in the 40s mm-hmm. when every week before the the main show, you would see the perils of Pauline or Buck Rogers in the 21st century. Um, And the thing that always surprised me about them was they would end every short with some incredibly elaborate cliffhanger, but then start the next episode and and that wouldn't have happened. Whatever it was, it it either resolved beautifully or completely didn't happen in in the the narrative of it. Um, And I thought that that was very clever of them. (laughs) Perhaps it's something we should take into consideration when we're trying to create create stuff that works on several platforms, etc. Well, there, there are a lot of answers out there in the world. And, and I love looking at the way that, that people used to solve them. Um, because th- there are a lot of places where, oh, they had this exact same problem in the creative articulation of this, but it was a radio drama that did it. Mm-hmm. Or it was Dickens when he was writing week to week in a newspaper. Or, um, you know, if we look at Greek plays, for example, they were doing a lot of political satire that's a lot more elegant than what you see out there today. <laughs> Now, what we were talking about in the episode before this, uh, amongst other things, the need to know where to start and identify mm-hmm. what to, st- and not try to do too much too early, 
so as not right. to be overwhelmed by the, all the possibilities and all the challenges at the same time, but identify where to start. So if mm-hmm. we go into that and unpack that a little bit, I mean, one thing that we've been, uh, we were talking about, uh, I think off record, but still uh, the mm-hmm. need to, to keep in mind that it's actually humans that we are designing for, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's algorithms are one thing and, and uh, data points are another thing, but it's still, the, the human-centered design process is still at the heart of what we're trying to do, or should be at the heart. Absolutely, and and there are two. There are at least two humans in that equation. There's the human who is the audience member on the other side, who you want to have a physically comfortable, pleasant, and engaging experience, even if you're talking about horror and you want to play with that and really scare someone. Um, but also the humans who are doing the creating. Mm-hmm. And to understand the humans you're working with, but also where you're going to be doing your best work and how to make good decisions about where to put your energy. Human-centered design processes are, are you know, important to apply to your work, but also to apply to the way you're making it. I, I you know, I'm somewhat controversial in that I do believe that people make better work when they're fed, watered, and sheltered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it, it's kind of crazy. I know, yeah. but I do think you're going to think clearly. You're going to make smart, creative decisions from it, and the work you're going to make is no less brilliant than if you're suffering for it. And when, you, when you're thinking about that, about the humans that are creating for these other humans that will be receiving it, when you look at what you've been doing, I mean, already that early in the process, I'm guessing there are pitfalls that you can mm-hmm. that you've encountered and uh, I know I've encountered numerous ones uh, everything <laughs> yeah. from from failed assumptions about myself about my creation and about the audience to you know basically whatever mm-hmm. are there are there any pitfalls you should be especially aware of so in part 1 we talked about writing things down between yourself and your partners yeah um And that one is critical. Giving yourself a framework of understanding. The other part is trying to learn too much too quickly. Mm -hmm. So making a smart early choice that you're going to be able to focus on building. It's equally difficult to keep yourself from bringing in too many partners, especially if you've found the resources to move ahead at a fast pace. Um, I think we see this a lot in like, technology startups as well. Sort of, we suddenly have the funding to do everything we've ever dreamed. But do we rationally have the schedule or timeline that we'll need to do this really well for our team to grow in expertise and to really learn sustainably from what we can put out versus bringing in every expert to do all of the things we can imagine all at once? And and you see that being a sort of common trait of um, sort of new founders uh, in a lot of ways. And and when you have teams that tend to have people with more experience, you often see them spending more time in these development phases. So when they're doing their pilot, they give themselves more time to get that first thing to market, Mm -hmm. more time to sort of review and learn what they don't know, 
whether that's the the new processes of SEO or if it's a new sort of production for them, uh, making sure that they can build a team around it to do the audience development, just to make sure they have things buttoned up a bit more tightly before they're going to market. If you're trying to learn how to produce and design too many things, you're going to get into that real decision fatigue past the point of it being bearable um, and past the point where the decisions you're making are going to be based on careful thought. Mm -hmm. Um, So being able to understand what the shape of your team can take on at any given time, and what is the most sustainable timeline you can build around your project. And I think one key yeah. point that I found myself is the the need to know the gray areas, to, kn- to know what you don't know, but also to yeah. identify, I mean, there's so many things <laughs> I don't know, but to identify which ones I could just put to the side and which ones I really need some input into, you know, where to, yeah. because you only have so many hours in a day. Even well, though you love your projects, you probably yes. love something else in your life as well. So, And it's also um, the thing that takes the most time on projects, in my experience, is actually sort of human development. Humans develop at their own thoughts and decisions at, at times that are sometimes much slower than you might be able to program a machine to do it. I mean... Mm-hmm. Yeah, much, much slower. You know, to get to a point where you truly understand a business structure or why you might be developing, it it could take several months of being involved with something and learning from the people around you. And, And it's important to recognize, especially when you're sort of in the executive position, that it's going to take time for the complex humans you're working with who are incredibly talented experts in their field to really understand why some decisions are being made. And they might be being made with a very specific purpose that's part of something that that person doesn't see yet. Mm -hmm. And to be compassionate, but also to, to recognize in your production timelines that the team is going to get there slower than you can make that decision. So being open and building in enough time for people to be processing big picture thinking. Um, It's important. And I think uh, there are also some things where the culture of the group you have, depending on your personality, depending on the the personality of your collaborators or employees, you, you don't necessarily know how open it is until you see where things aren't working. Mm. Um, And that takes time to emerge as well. So for me, one of the biggest superpowers a producer can have, you know, this person who's sort of in between everyone, they're not quite the perfect business person, they're not quite the perfect executive, they're not quite the perfect creator, they're all of that stuff, is uh, to be able to ask the stupid question in the room, Mm. to be able to be the person who is asking the question that other people feel intimidated to ask because it seems so straightforward or because they're they're nervous about speaking to a boss or someone who they, they are, you know, really intimidated by their expertise. I've seen this a lot in creative people talking to, say, uh, programmers or developers or, mm-hmm. you know, programmers and developers, um, you know, not not 
understanding why this process works this way in the business or the art of making something. And that intimidation ends up giving you all sorts of weird human characteristics in a room. Um, the sociology is, is fascinating. Uh, and I am always surprised and, and kind of delighted when you start to see people moving through some of those sort of uh, behaviors, being able to get people into rooms and into rooms where they can ask questions and feel comfortable enough in dialogue to be embraced for their own expertise and also to be open to asking questions of the other folks in the room who have different expertise mm-hmm. is going to help make work that they couldn't make on their own. And, and that's really the goal, um, to give your team and the creative process time to grow and flourish. And that that's a human equation, not necessarily a production equation. And now we come back to one of the things that we discussed before we started doing this podcast as well, the art of making the right decisions. From your experience, what are the decisions that people get wrong? And of course, again, <laughs> differs wildly a bit from project to project. But still, I know from experience that some mistakes are made when yeah. when, when those in power are more intrigued by sign, signing up big names than to see if they right. actually are a good fit for whatever they do. And I have a lot of examples from my own production <laughs> work as well. Oh, but course. still, let's see. Well, I've got a lot of dirt. No, (laughs) you know, the the, the hardest thing um, I find is, you know, talking about the sort of fog of war, the fog of production, the fog of decision making, Mm -hmm. Um, especially when you are that sort of center point as a showrunner, a creator, a CEO, or whomever, where you have to make more decisions per day than you ever have before. Um, and, And that point can be really real. And depending on the sort of cadence, the energy of a production, everyone is going to have to make more decisions on the fly than they've ever had to make before. And generally, there there are a few things that I can say have been sort of the worst crimes of decision making. One is putting off making the decision until you have perfect information or perfect experience. Mm-hmm. Um Oftentimes, making a decision and communicating it, if it's a bad decision, you will get feedback on it that will help you either support it or continue down that path and and being open to that as well. So the the second crime is not learning from the feedback that you're getting based on that decision. Being open to the fact that we're going to see how this goes and it'll be okay if we have to change it. You know, this seems like the best decision I can make now, but information is never perfect. Decisions are never exactly perfect, but you want to test it. You want to get it out there and see what information you get back. And depending on the trust level and communicativeness of your team, they might give you more feedback than you need, or you might have to kind of search it out. All of that is sort of critical. We've got not making the decision in a timely manner and then not being open to the feedback on that decision to be able to change course if it's necessary. Another one is, so there's a process in design theory called wayfinding, which is a a way of helping you navigate decisions that are complex or where there are more than one correct answer, which more often than not is, is the position you may be in. You need to make a decision about this. Everything looks like it would be a good decision. How do I make this decision? Yeah. Um, and this is a process where you basically try and narrow it down to three 
practices? What is it? What are three results that we could choose from or three paths we could take? And usually you can exclude one. And then from there, you have two viable choices. Um, I see this happening a lot when, uh, you know, your response to RFPs or you have something where someone has asked you to come up with ideas, you would present three, probably not five, but at least three to give uh, someone else the opportunity to engage with feedback um, to either let them make the decision better. And this is a lot of the work I I find in uh, business consulting. How do we reduce the time to decision for people? How can we help support the people who have to make decisions, who are the authority, when they are incredibly busy and everyone wants their attention and they don't have time to do that research or development or thought process on their own? So how do we present the information to ourselves or to someone we need an answer from? So breaking it down into some options helps you both review those options together and ultimately psychologically helps you narrow it down. So if you have these three options presented to you that generally fit within the parameters that you you are presented, you know, usually you can exclude one, then you're down to two, both options are fine. We can take a test. We can take a, a, a leap on this one. And if it doesn't work, well, we've got this as a backup plan, maybe. If you're, say, making a creative decision about um, your, your project and you've got, so we know we're going to start um, by focusing on this one bigger budget piece. And then we have seven or eight ideas of things we could make to, to market it or reinforce it or explore these other platforms we want to pursue, well, let's break it down into the ones that our team could make with the fewest resources. Yeah. Or And so then it's like, okay, let's make decisions about what our goals are for this three to six month period. So once you have those goals, you can then map everything else onto it. And what are the options that would help us meet this audience development goal fastest? You can judge those three faster. It's more like editing a decision than it is creating one on a blank page. And everyone should be on the same page and move forward, hopefully in broadly the same direction (laughs) as well. Yeah, and, and, this is another point of, of contention that I see a lot in creative projects. Um, and that's, it's everyone's job to communicate with each other. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's not one person's job to be chasing everyone. And everyone has been brought in for a real reason on a creative project. They all have talents and skills that are recognized. And everyone has a responsibility to communicate to the people who don't know their expertise and the people who do what they're doing, why they're doing it and how they can work together to improve the whole piece. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can be difficult for people who are say not writers to do documentation. It's a skill you have to build. It can be difficult if you are not particularly social um, to speak up in meetings and communicate. And if you're the producer or you're running a project That's part of your job, too. How can you help your team members develop those communication skills, Mm -hmm. give them places where they're going to be able to communicate well and effectively with others, where it's it's going to be 
enhancing the ways of communication that they already are good at, but also pushing and requiring them to communicate in the ways where they will have to communicate, Um, especially for students or, or people coming in as more junior members of teams. They may not have ever been asked to write emails that document their work. Um, They may not have have ever had to use uh, uh, this format of project management um, or this collaboration tool. And similarly, for people who are experienced, I personally, I, I have to use Slack for work, but I loathe using Slack for certain forms of communication that should be a little bit more complete, that should be a little bit more formal. I think it's very effective to chat back and forth or share files that are relevant in those subject groups, but I don't find it to be useful if you need to give a brief update to someone specific. It's not the same sort of formal communication as you would get with a letter or email that would be reviewed in a court of law about progress or if you're showing something to a board. And there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer to communication, much as solving that would be a, a real startup goal for some technology group. Now, I don't want to go into you know the practical details of how to produce 360 video or how to uh-huh. how to put up a transmedia uh, uh, production plan or stuff like that. There, there are resources right. out there uh, to to look at if you want to look at them, or they could just call you up basically. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm to easy to Google. Out. Yeah. <laughs> but as a final question, because we are running a little bit out of time, even on our second mm-hmm. episode of this of this podcast, <laughs> what's the advantage of starting to look into these areas of of mm-hmm. incorporating other media platforms? Because I, mm-hmm. I would imagine there are people listening to this or people sitting thinking about it and thinking that, what, why should I? You know, why don't I just do my podcast? Or why don't right. I just do this uh, television series why should i even bother with all of this that would only increase the things i need to learn increase the things i need to know increase the amount of people i need to work with i can't remember if it was this this part or it was part one where i was talking about the sort of ennui and malaise Hmm. of the sort of mechanically built platforms for communication we have right now the the first sort of flourishing of transmedia storytelling for for film and and things like that came at a time where the internet was pretty open. It was a little bit of a wild west. And everyone was trying to do new experimental fun things that would catch someone's attention. Mm. And right now, a lot of the needs that existed when the internet was more young still exist for audiences. Mm. They want to be invited to play. They crave the ability to engage deeply with a story world or a community that's going to be compelling and delightful and give them an experience and share an experience together that is going to be taking them somewhere deeper. It's going to make them feel like things are more possible, um, that are that's going to be a really fun way to spend their time. So even though distribution is harder in some ways, 
the SEO, the the advertisement frameworks, the the you know questions about what algorithm, which months, you know, to to be able to reach a specific audience. Mm. Um, thinking about the different ways you can creatively engage with that audience to invite them into a world is the reason why transmedia techniques uh, were interesting, are effective, and are deeply profitable. Mm-hmm. So when we're thinking about why we're choosing specific platforms, going back to putting the human audience at the center of our thinking, where can we find someone? Where can we invite them to play? And that might be a passive experience like a, a video or a film, um, something where they're going to feel things because of what you've made and and but what you've made isn't going to change or an active experience like a game where they can spend hours playing with other people mm-hmm. or playing with characters that you've created. But also thinking more broadly, if I can find a way to share this invitation through a social video or through a, a live event that people can talk about, it's a very human inspiration to engage All of these things are invitations for them to do something with you. And knowing your audience and finding your audience, you know, it's more specific. You're dealing with different niches than it was 10 years ago. But the mechanisms are still there. You can still use them. You can still find them. But you're up against the rest of life. So when you find your way to them, when you're inviting them, you want it to be the most creative, engaging, exciting story you can tell them to get them to join you. Yes, absolutely. Um, So finding people means targeting. It means figuring out what people want to do and how that connects to your world, the the platforms you're using, the experiences you're making, the stories you're telling. And and you've got to find them wherever they are. And, And they're all over the place. So using these tools lets you test, learn, and invite more people, especially for groups that are starting out, but also inside massive conglomerate networks like the Walt Disney Company, they have to be able to to cast a net to invite people in. Hmm. And story is a great way to connect people to that invitation, creating connected experiences. You know, I've, I've, I'm sure you've heard me say it before, when the story and the experience is better, people like it more, and you make more money. And better might mean the best possible giant monster shark movie you can make, (laughs) or it might mean a truly transcendental experience of fine art that couldn't have made without modern, be made without the technology we have in 2019. But figuring out how to, to make it better involves other people. So you want to find a robust creative team that will be honest with you. And you want to find an audience that will be interested in spending the time with you. Wonderful, Caitlin. Thank you ever so much for uh, participating in this podcast. And I look forward to talking to you again in the future. I'm always around and I, I'm I am this kind of nerd. So uh, if any of you (laughs) listeners uh, want to get in touch with me, you can find me on the internet. 
Um, I'm the producer, Caitlin Burns. There's another Caitlin Burns who is an exceptional graphic designer. I'm the one in New York. Um, but uh, I love answering questions. I love hearing about people's new creative projects. Um, and I'm especially fond of helping people solve weird problems. So I, I look forward to hearing from all of you. Take care and have a great day in New York. Have a wonderful evening in Finland. <laughs> okay, bye. 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 